Niagara is again seeing a dramatic increase in the number of opioid-related deaths compared to 2020, when we had the third highest number in Ontario, next only to Toronto and Peel. And we're on track in 2021 to double the number of deaths recorded in 2019. But substance-related deaths are only part of the opioid crisis. So I asked Marty Mako, who was commander of Mobile Integrated Health at Niagara Emergency Medical Services, to join me to talk about what EMS is experiencing with overdose calls and uh, as well hospitalizations, and to learn more about the various mental health services EMS teams provide. Hi, Marty. Thanks for coming on the show to talk to me. I think largely, well, in the beginning, we're going to talk about some uh, opioid um, use stats, mostly EMS's involvement in overdoses in hospital visits, because generally we look at that opioid death stat, which is uh, last year for Niagara was was shocking. We were uh, third last year in Ontario for the number of opioid deaths. And uh, this year we're on track for, uh, I think it's going up from 16 to 20 per month. We only have stats up until June. So it's, it's become another dire situation here. What we often don't look at are the EMS calls, suspected overdoses, and hospital admissions, which are also fairly striking numbers here in Niagara. So how many calls do you get um, about an opioid or, or a, I shouldn't just say opioid, um, you know, a drug overdose situation. Mm-hmm. Um, and then maybe we can break it down a bit. But what would sure. your total number be? I'll share with you the most up-to-date data that we have here from, from EMS. Uh, I guess the first thing I just want to say, though, is although it's a data dive, I do want to acknowledge these are real families and real lives being impacted. And I think sometimes when you're looking at large numbers like this, it's easy to gloss over that every statistic represents a, a, a life impacted in the Niagara region. So just before I dive into the numbers, did want to acknowledge that I do really want to remember that we're trying to help um, our local residents here and don't want to get yeah. lost in the numbers. But yeah, no, no. But Th- to- thank you so much. Thank you so much for saying that because you're absolutely right. We tend to look at numbers and, for- and forget yeah, there's the a lot people. of tra- tragic, really tragic stories, but tragically, these are on the rise. So looking at the most up-to-date stats that I do have available, this from looking at 2021, from January to the end of October, we had 842 suspected opioid overdoses that would be responded to by Niagara EMS. That averages out to approximately 84 responses per month. And just to compare that to previous years, so that's 842 just from January to October. We had 625 for all of 2020 and 499 for all of 2019. So it just shows the trending in a not very favorable direction. Uh, And in terms of a peak month, what we saw was in August of 2021, we had our record high of 131 EMS responses to overdoses in that month alone. Uh, Oh, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, but um, why August? Because I have seen spikes before, you know, where it'll spike at the beginning of the year and then it kind of goes down a little bit when I look at these, you know, bar charts, et cetera. So, so why would August, and is that 
is that a general is august a general you know year to year or or was it no, just this year we saw the spike it was a spike 2021 specifically so yeah i don't have a lot of re i have maybe assumptions but i don't have real reasons to show in the data why because if to your point i've looked at 2019 and 2020 and they did not see a similar spike in august however there was a rise from june to july and then july to august and then in september it dipped back down again so i'm not sure what was going on in the summer months maybe people more outdoors uh contributing to that but i don't know how that would directly impact overdoses but for whatever reason august 2021 did stand out in a not a positive way well i know when i've talked to talia storm at positive living in the last you know year and a half sort of kept up on what was going on um and and one of the 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 driving factors for um, overdoses um, going up was when we had a lockdown in COVID and then people were being encouraged to stay away from each other and not have contact. So then prior to COVID, there was a, you know, people were encouraged to use with another person and have an naloxone yes. kit. So yes you know, we were in lockdown through the winter and then we weren't in lockdown. So maybe that has, has something to do with it. Now, the other thing that we really need to talk about, and, and this goes to, you know, we have to think of, of people is the number of people who um, experience an overdose. And I guess we should clarify that that number is um, an overdose responded to by EMS, Correct. not an, not an emergency room visit, correct? That's a separate data point. I right. do have that available as well, but you're right. We do track opioid-related ED visits separately from EMS responses because not every person we respond to wants to be brought to hospital. Yeah. Now, again, to, to, let, to, to talk about the people, a lot of people think of uh, drug users um, as people who live in the park or they, you know, they live in Centennial Gardens or they're living in a, you know, a tent down by the creek or, you know, in, in a homeless situation. But this is not the case. There are many, mm -hmm. many, many people who have found themselves with an addiction problem for whatever reason who are fortunate enough to have a home. Right. It certainly cuts across all de sociodemographic backgrounds. I can give you a little bit of a, a profile just from the data. To your point, it does cut across all ages, all backgrounds, all genders. However, looking at the data, we do know 75% of our EMS calls for overdoses are occurring in males. So three quarters are in males. 63% are in individuals aged 25 to 44. So there is almost two thirds that are in that, what you might call young adult cohort, 25 to 44. And then geographically speaking, 46% of those calls are coming from St. Catharines. 24% uh, are in Niagara Falls. So that's about 70% between the two larger municipalities. We stu still do get calls from the more rural municipalities and smaller towns and cities as well. It definitely cuts across all 12 municipalities in Niagara, but the, the majority are coming from our larger urban centers. Yeah, that, that makes sense to me, but I am interested that the calls are 75% male 
because I think if we looked at hard numbers, um, and I could be wrong again about this, we wouldn't be looking at hard numbers that said of people who are using drugs, 75% of those people are males and only 25% are females. So why are we seeing a higher number of calls for suspected overdoses or um, people being taken to hospital at that level for men, three, you know, three quarters are men and one quarter are women. I, is it just that they don't, women don't tend to call? I, it could be that this is the male coping mechanism for the struggles they're having in their life. It's not to say, you know, maybe women are using different reasons or different ways to cope with what their struggles are, because what we see uh, with many folks who are struggling, there there could be some earlier issues in their life with mental health or addictions. It's not generally new, uh, a new issue. Sometimes it is, but there's often a chain of events that led up to this. Uh, that, you know, you're talking about childhood trauma, you're talking about other struggles they've had earlier on in their life that have led up to this point of addiction. That's just been our experience. It's not something generally someone woke up one day and decided to become addicted to opioids. Right? You know what, uh, I, I always say that when when you know, when people are talking in, about um, users in this negative way, I always say, do you think they woke up and said, I think I'll become a heroin addict today? And so Not many people, uh, it, it, it could be a life experience, like you said, or trauma and using drugs to sort of mask that. But we also see a lot of people who have had, um, you know, surgeries, a, well, or, you know, a badly broken leg or yes. something like that, and they're in their uh, prescribed an opiate for pain. And then they just are not able to get off of that. And then, of course, right. we start to see the deaths, which are largely due to fentanyl getting into the drug supply. And uh, people also think of that as just being in, um, you know, a heroin supply or something like that, but it's in pot. You know, you, you've got that risk that it could be in pot because all you need is that little, you know, microgram to transfer from within a, a, you know, a place where drugs are being put together and packaged to be sold um, and so there's really nothing that's safe out of there. That's, and, you know, and that's, that's so difficult. And we've looked at, and if we look at deaths, we've gone from approximately 11 per month in 2019. And in the first, I believe, seven or eight months of 2021, because the stats are, are delayed, um, we're looking at 20 per yeah. month. So a massive, massive increase and uh, I mean, it has gone up steadily, but uh, I don't but know. I think, you've hit a, I think you've hit it there with the toxicity of the drug supply having a huge impact. Uh, what you're essentially saying is people aren't aware what they're taking. They might think yeah. they're taking one thing, but they're taking something that's 20 times stronger, 100 times stronger. And that's what's leading to these deaths. Because then if you're using a loan on top of that, there's no one to call 911 for you. Um, yeah. There's no one to help bring you back. So that's the tragedy. Right. Which takes us to naloxone. Mm-hmm. And naloxone, I mean, even, even I, because I was thinking about it and I'm thinking, would I feel comfortable because the public is being encouraged to carry naloxone yeah. kit mm-hmm. so in case they see someone in an overdose situation. But um, I know, and I, you know, um, through my work, through my work on the board at, at Quest Community Health Center and so on, 
I'm pretty well educated in, in the situation. And I'm not sure I would feel comfortable hmm. going up to someone and uh, administering on the Loxone kit. Mm-hmm. So what can we tell the public about yes. naloxone? So we've got bus shelters now. I don't know what you think about those, that, you know, the big bus shelter that says, you know, get a naloxone kit. Um, I don't know how many people are going to say to themselves, yeah, you know what, I'm going to don't go and do that because then I could help. Right. You well, you know what I would say? Naloxone kits? Yeah. And it is a personal decision. So to your point, if you're not comfortable, but let's say you walked by someone that you thought was overdosed and passed out, rather than just keep walking by, you can still call 911 and we will come. So I wouldn't let that be their barrier to helping. If you were feeling very uncomfortable in doing it yourself, you can still call 911 and someone will come and and help. If you did feel comfortable um, there is also the Good Samaritan law. So you cannot, you will not get in trouble if you're afraid of causing harm to someone. So I did want to make that if that was the reason you're uncomfortable helping that the Good Samaritan law will protect you. It's a very easy procedure to do though. If it was say a family member or a friend and you did want to intervene and help, uh, by using the nasal, um, um, syringe to help administer naloxone. It is meant to be very easy. There's instructions inside the kit itself that explain how to use it. Uh, so I, I, I would hope that part isn't the barrier, but if it is just know you can always call and ask for help. If there's just a reason you didn't feel comfortable administering it yourself, even though we're promoting it widely, uh, to the community, I wouldn't want someone to feel overly pressured. Yes. Yes. And uh, I have um, called 911 on a couple of occasions when uh, I lived down the street from Montebello Park. And I, Robin and I were walking one day and way across the park, we saw a woman. This was a number of years ago and we couldn't see her moving. So mm-hmm. we, we went to, to see what was going on. And, and, but we watched people walking by this woman. It was, I don't know, 8.30, people are going to work. And we're watching people walking by this woman and there's clearly something wrong. We thought she was, we thought she was dead. And we went up and the fellow came along and told us what was going on. And, you know, he said, she's huffing. I didn't know what that meant. But we called 911 right away. And Mm -hmm. um, EMS and the police came very, very quickly to Mm -hmm. respond to this, um, to the, this woman. And thankfully... Mm -hmm. Uh, they were able to get her to the hospital. Okay. And well, that's sometimes why people will use in public spaces is because then if does someone does see them, they will call. Right, right. Uh, now, let's talk about some of the other programs that uh, EMS has so people can understand as well mm-hmm. what other situa- health situations they, they can uh, call for that are not Certainly. necessarily emergency rooms. So one of them is... MHART, which is the Mobile Integrated Health Response Team. Yes. Let me explain a bit about why we have this team. So when most people think of EMS and calling an ambulance, they think of calling 911 and an ambulance and two paramedics flies lights and sirens down the street to bring you to the hospital. And for a very long time, that was the primary and only service that we provided. But I think what we learned over time, looking at the data, Uh, is that not everyone needs that type of healthcare response. It is important for those time-sensitive critical emergencies when you're having a heart attack, choking, uh, major vehicle accident with blood loss. Yes, bring me to hospital as quickly as possible. However, not all healthcare emergencies are that type. 
and not all healthcare emergencies need a quick assessment in the ED. Some are different and they need the right type of response by the right type of healthcare provider. So it more it takes more of a nuanced approach to really see what that is. And, and mental health and addictions are a perfect example of that. So what we've done is formed a new type of response team titled MHART. Now that stands for Mental Health and Addictions Response Team, where we pair up a paramedic with the mental health nurse. Now, the, the great part there is multidisciplinary. You get two different disciplines working together. The paramedic will start by doing a health assessment just to make sure ED transport is not required. Because if it is, you first and foremost, we would bring you to hospital. However, if the patient refuses transport to ED and is open to looking at other options, we then have a mental health nurse in real time who can step in and look at different types of referral options to more appropriate community-based mental health supports that the person might not be aware of. They may have called 911 because it's an emergency to them and they know we'll respond right away, but to better meet their mental health or addictions healthcare needs, there could be a suite of different community-based supports available that this person may have just not known about. Like we find healthcare system navigation is a struggle for a lot of people, even well-educated people to know what's available, when it's available, how do I access it? How do I get involved? Uh, so that's a lot of our uh, work of our team is we'll start by doing the general health assessment, if ED transport is not required and the patient signs a refusal, then we can step in in real time with the mental health nurse and look at developing a care plan to better meet their needs. So this team has been in place since late 2018, uh, so just over three years now, and we've seen some really great successes by, where appropriate, still transporting the hospital, but where, where also appropriate, finding some different care options to better meet their needs. Does the person calling need to know that, um, okay, you know what, I need MHART? Because like you said, a lot Great of question. people wouldn't know. So, or, or do they call in, do they get kind of triaged by the yes. 911 person? Yeah, let me start with that process. So you cannot call and ask for MHART directly. Great question. So what you would do is call 911, just like you normally would. And a system status controller, who's one of the dispatch workers in our communication center will ask you a series of questions as they normally would to determine the nature and severity of your emergency. And if you uh, answer some questions in predetermined ways that we call MPDS determinants, that's the software triage program that we use in EMS, then the MHART team would get dispatched on your call. So you're not directly asking for them, but by how you answer those questions that you're asked, the team will get dispatched when appropriate. So that way we're making the best use of MHART team's time because they're getting dispatched on calls where they know they can make the biggest difference. Right. And then there's um, uh, the mobile crisis response team. When you're saying, you know, it can get a little bit confusing. Um, the mobile crisis response team is a, is a, uh, a partnership between Niagara Region Police and the Canadian Mental Health Association. And yeah, we, they go we work to very closely. Oh, we yes. work closely with them, Jenna. So I'll explain okay. a little bit of the difference because there's oftentimes where we'll even work together on calls with MCERT. Uh, and it's been a great partnership with them because police is still needed in cases where there are weapons or a threat of violence or threat of imminent harm. Arm. So when those criteria are met, it's much more appropriate for a police officer to be present. However, there's a lot of other calls that are more medical in nature and lower acuity mental health calls. Those are the ones that we would be much more appropriate to respond. They're all mental health calls, but I guess along the mental health 
spectrum or continuum, you have a lot of different types of calls from low acuity to those calls involving weapons and threats of imminent harm. So it really depends on what we hear by the call taker from that intake, which team gets dispatched. Yeah, and I think that that's amazing. And I think it's great to know that um, I know with AMSERT, a lot of people are not only diverted from emergency rooms, which are really, really overcrowded. You know, I mean, you know how how mm -hmm. bad it can be um, at emergency rooms, but yeah. people are also sometimes diverted from the legal system. So Definitely. an arrest is not necessary where you know, a number of years ago, a police officer would not be trained necessarily to make that kind of decision. So Definitely. the so the place for people to always start is with 911. Now, my final question, I guess, EMS um, workers have been under so much stress since mm. COVID and the pandemic. And we know that we know what's happening with first responders and, and EMS teams are kind of what I would consider the first responder of the first responder. Yeah. What kind of stress and pressure have, have your teams undergone over the last year and a half? And they're having to make decisions on whether yeah. they can take a person to the hospital or not. The system itself is under a great degree of stress, the healthcare system as a whole. So paramedics are part of that. It includes hospital nurses, primary care. I think everyone working in the healthcare field is feeling the the never-ending yeah, impact of this pandemic so you know in the beginning of course the healthcare heroes wording was out there and we we're getting celebrated and now it feels like it's just a marathon that's never ending and uh you know they need their break and their rest too but we've seen a lot of people retiring from the field leaving the field and it, those who are left behind are still here out there working quietly day after day after day so yes it's a struggle it's a stress uh, but they love their jobs. They're super passionate about the work. So, you know, you're trying to respect that balance because you got to care for the caregivers too. They need their rest. They need their vacation and their break time. If they're going to bring their best self to work and support the most vulnerable during their most vulnerable times, people don't call 911 on their best day, right? You're calling yeah. 911 on your worst day. So we deal with people on their worst day every day. Uh, and so you're wanting to bring your, not just your strongest technical clinical assessment skills, but your compassion, your empathy, your active listening skills, all of those soft skills, uh, I think are equally important, but you need to be rested and energized to be able to bring that every day. So yeah, it's, it's been a challenging time because the pandemic has brought a lot of stress to people in their personal lives too. Like this, you're just talking about the professional side of their life everyone's been having struggles in their personal life too with whether it's you know kids at home trying to juggle all of you know homeschooling as well as your own job life and um yeah but they don't want to be felt sorry for when i talk to the medics who are out there they're hardworking. they're proud of their job but yeah it has been a lot and it's been uh it's definitely stressful over the past number of months marty thanks so much for coming on and, and explaining this in this all um i think that uh goes without saying. The EMS teams are fantastic and we're all very appreciative that, um, that you're here for us. Definitely. And, and proud of the roles and serving the community is what we're here for. So, you know, they're, they're proud of what they do. They like giving back, but it's a very humble profession. You know, I find paramedics aren't really here for the spotlight. 
Uh, they just want to do good work and they want to help people get the right care at the right place at the right time. So the fact that we're able to have more of a flexible suite of options now with different types of response teams, hopefully at the end of the day, it's all based on patients and what they need.